0: one hope church well good morning it's great to see all of you here uh, it's been a beautiful weekend spent a lot of time outdoors yesterday and which was great also uh Hits the sinuses just a little bit, but it's always great to be outdoors. We're in Luke chapter 19 this morning. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we spent a little time, or a bunch of us spent a little time outdoors at the G-Day game. Uh, had close to 93,000 people there, depending on who you listen to. Um, I had the privilege of sitting up in one of the suites with a bunch of our faculty from our college, because it's a lot cheaper to get up there during the G-Day game than it is during a regular game. So they uh, they let somebody like me hang out with them, but it was game day is always a huge event here in town, and even G day on a, on a special year like this where we've got a new coach and a lot of excitement, it's uh, an exciting time. And one of the things they did this year for G day that they normally only do on game days is they had the dog walk. Now, if you've never been to a game, if you've never seen this, the buses that carry the football players come down Lumpkin and stop right there by the Tate Center and the dining hall that's across the way there. And usually the players rock the bus to where they feel like they're about to fall over or they look like they're about to fall over. Um, And then the players come out, and from the bus at Lumpkin all the way into the stadium is just this line of people on both sides. There's the marching band. There are the cheerleaders. and, And even, like, once you get into the stadium, there's a whole other line of people. There were, like, some kids that were there for some reason so, the, the I, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure they did something great. They were in some sports league or something, and so they got to be out on the field as the the, the team came through. So, they come all the way through, and the band's playing, and it's all this excitement. And then, um, and then, even like right at the start of the game, the, the band and the cheerleaders are on the field, and the players run out of the locker room, there's smoke and everything. It's this big production. Um, there's a lot of history in things like that. Uh, If you look in our history books and you look at maybe old movies and things like that, it's a lot like the ancient political and religious processionals that we see in history books and that we see in these movies. Uh, They would be done for military victories or uh, probably the most common one that we may be familiar with is the Roman triumph that after a general had won a battle, he would put in a formal request to have uh, this type of ceremony for him as he would come marching back into town. And so it was a big deal. It would be when a, and a dignitary came. And even today we see this in parades or uh, even in weddings. Virtually every wedding has some type of processional and then a recessional where the people stand and there's music. Uh, it's, a, it's a big part. If you do a search for processional, 99% of the things you'll find are about weddings. Um, that's how important it is. So we come to this event in the life and ministry of Jesus that, that's really similar to a lot of that. So we're in Luke chapter 19 starting in verse 28. So, Luke 19, starting at verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which you will enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Thus shall you speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as He had told them. And as they were untying the colt, this owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as He was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as He was now approaching Near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in the highest, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And He answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a dramatic picture that we see in your word today of Jesus coming toward Jerusalem and the praise that was lifted up to you that was given to him at this moment. Lord, help us to understand it this morning. Help us to to understand the significance of it this morning. Teach us from your word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this this event, the triumphal entry, is one of the few events that's mentioned in all four Gospels. It's the beginning of a week of events that would ultimately lead to the cross. In verse 28, it says that He was ascending to Jerusalem, or you might have going up to Jerusalem. He was coming from Jericho, which is about 17 miles away. And from Jericho to Jerusalem is about a 3,300-foot Elevation change. So when they say going up, they literally mean going up. Uh, it's, it's quite a climb. It would be the same as if you went from sea level to the top of Black Rock Mountain in the course of 17 miles, about 200 feet per mile, um, which is a pretty good hike. And in verse 30, starting in verse 30, where he tells them to go get this colt, he, he tells them, that if anyone asks you, tell them that the Lord has need of it. And that word, Lord, is the word is the Greek word, kurios, which is very common in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's usually translated as Lord or Master or even as Sir. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to translate the word or the name Yahweh, which is God proper, God's proper name or, or Adonai. And so, it's a very common word. It has a lot of significance there. And when he tells them to go get a cult, he's being very intentional. See, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here, and he's making a very overt messianic claim. Back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey... Even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So we see this that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy in the way that he is entering Jerusalem. He acts regally as a king would with this procession and in the way that he makes his request for this animal. But he used a very lowly animal. He used a donkey. He didn't ride a horse. He didn't come in on a camel. He rode a donkey. Verse 37, he talks about the crowd of disciples. He says, The whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. This crowd of disciples was obviously more than just the 12 that, that we're familiar with. They were mostly disciples who were coming with him, not necessarily those coming out of Jerusalem. So this was a crowd that had been following him along the way. It says that they came by Bethany. If you remember, Bethany is the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And some of the crowd had seen Jesus raise Lazarus. They, they knew, they had seen not just the healings, they'd seen him raise a man from the dead and kept talking about it. And as they came over the Mount of Olives, they got their first good sight of the city of Jerusalem. It's like when you crest over a hill and it's just laid out there for you. And the temple would have dominated their view. It, it was right there. Jerusalem at the time was a city of about a square mile. But in the middle of it, right as you come off the Mount of Olives, there would be the temple there, which was by far the largest building. It was covered in gold. It was just an amazing sight to see. And at this sight, the crowd just breaks out in joyful praise. It just is overwhelming to them that they're coming in. They're coming in with, this, they're coming in with Jesus. They see the city, and they break out in praise. And it says that they threw their coats on the ground, which is a sign uh, which signifies a dignitary that is coming. Other Gospels also mention that they put palm branches down on the road, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. We, we celebrate it each week, uh, the Sunday before Easter each year. And they shout. And the words that they're shouting come from Psalm 118, which is... Uh, And the words that they're shouting are very similar to the language that the angels used to announce His birth back in Luke chapter 2. But from Psalm 118, they're saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Excuse me, that was from Luke chapter 2. So these words are very similar. He's quoting from Psalm 118. He's echoing the sentiments that we heard uh, at His birth. And the crowd likely thought that this was when Jesus would come and remove the Roman occupiers and to take his throne. See, Jesus was more than a rabbi or a teacher, and he was more than a miracle worker, which seemed to be okay things to be at this time. But Jesus was a king, and this was a royal procession. Jesus was a king, and this was a royal procession as he came into Jerusalem. Now in verse 39, we have our good friends the Pharisees who always seem to be around anytime something good is going on to throw a little bit of cold water on it. See, the Pharisees were the religious establishment. They were the ones who were in control of the Jewish religion and they were watching every move and anytime they thought Jesus stepped out of line, they were quick to rebuke Him for it. See, they thought that these actions that the people were taking were blasphemous or dangerous, but Jesus confirmed that it was right. Right? And it was good for them, for the people to praise in this way. See, the Pharisees rejected Jesus as the Messiah both religiously and politically. Because at this time and with these people, religion and politics were intertwined, especially among the Jewish people. They were right there together. And so Jesus was not just making a religious claim. He was making a political claim. And in verse 40, Jesus responds to their, their command. They, they told Him to rebuke your disciples. And He responds by saying, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. See, Jesus' response made it perfectly clear that He claimed to be the Messiah and the King. He was not missing any words here. See, as we talked about last week in this parable that Jesus told about the nobleman that would go away for a while and then come back and judge his servants. See, Jesus is that nobleman, as we said last week. He's going to leave and then he's going to return. So he, as that nobleman, as that king, deserved to be treated this way. The king will be praised and nature itself would praise him if the people didn't. Let's keep going here, starting in verse 41. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. See, Jesus, His royal procession had led Him to the royal city, the city of Jerusalem. And when He saw it, He wept. Now, Jesus wasn't weeping over what was about to happen to Him. He knew what was coming, but that's not why He was weeping. He was weeping over the city and the people that he loved. See, Jesus was a man of great emotion. Over 15 times, at least 15 times in Scripture, we see where Jesus became angry. One instance is in Mark chapter 3, where he had gone to the synagogue in Capernaum, and it said he became angry because of the people's stubborn hearts. See, Jesus didn't hide his emotions, he handled them properly. And behind his anger was grief. Just as now, as he stands looking at this city, he's crying. He's weeping from grief over these people. This great city, which was and is central to God's plan, lacked a real love for God. Verse 42 He says, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. Jesus' ministry had been out in the open, and it would continue to be out and open for this next week. It was open and overt, but now His purpose was hidden. It's very similar to His parables where He would tell a story, and people would hear it, And then his disciples, like, Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about there. And then he would go on to explain it. And he would say that these things have been hidden from them, but have been given to you. So he makes them clear to those he chooses to. And that kind of echoes what he says here. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. See, the people in this crowd were shouting peace. But the city didn't recognize the Prince of Peace. It says their minds and their hearts had been hardened. See, for centuries, the Jewish people had misused their religious position and authority. And now this privileged position would be removed. And 43 and 44 are pretty hard words, especially here hearing them from Jesus. It says, For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave, one, leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. See, Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen some 40 years later. In AD 70, the city was just leveled. The temple was torn down. That's why there's no temple there today. If you go there, there's there's the the mount where the temple would be, but there's no temple there. It's never been rebuilt. But this, as Jesus says, was the judgment for rejecting the Messiah. He says, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. See, eventually, destruction comes to those that reject the Messiah. Destruction comes to those that reject the Messiah. Let's keep reading. Verse 45 and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, in my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words." So Jesus enters the city, enters the city of Jerusalem, and He goes straight to His palace, the temple. You know, it's like, well, the temple is not really a palace. Well, see, Herod's palace was for people. The temple was for God. It was God's house on earth. And it was not the first time that He had cleansed the temple. If you look at John chapter 2, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, He comes in and He cleans the temple, and it accounts there that He had a scourge or a, a... basically a weapon that would be used as he was doing this, and he would throw over the tables. He was probably angry at that time, I think we can safely say. Um, But we see that after that first cleansing, which had happened some probably three years before that, that the corrupt practices that he had cleansed that first time probably very quickly came back into play. And what was going on here was that the law, the Old Testament law, God's law, required that certain defect-free animals uh, be used for the sacrifices, and that when you gave, you had to use Jewish coins for the sacrifices and offerings that would go on. But what was happening was, was since Rome was in control of Jerusalem, it was Roman money that was being used in common practice. And so... If you wanted to give an offering, you'd have to go exchange your Roman money for the Jewish coins that would be used, much like we do when we go to Mexico. We, we exchange our American dollars for uh, the Mexican uh, money there. It's the same you do most any time you travel to another country. But this was in their own country. This was their temple. and so, But to adhere to God's law, they had to do this. They had to exchange it for the, the right currency. And the animals... This, what they are doing here was not necessarily required. Yes, they had to have defect-free animals. They didn't want you to bring your animal that was defective to offer to God because that's a pretty good lesson that if we're going to offer something to God, it should be our best, not our leftovers. But they had made it this extreme legalism, and they compelled the people to buy the animals at the temple rather than bringing their own. They were kind of like pre-approved animals to where you could come in and say, well, you know, this, this animal has been pre-approved. And you're like, okay, well, that could be a pretty good service. That'd be convenient. I don't have to haul a lamb all the way from my house. But what they were doing, they set up a monopoly. And if you know anything about economics, you know if you set up a monopoly, you can, call, you can charge exorbitant rates and just rob people blind. If there's only one place to get what you need, they can charge you basically whatever they want for it. And so... That's what made this so wrong is that the people were using God's law for sordid gain and they were greatly hindering and taking advantage of true worshipers. And even worse, they were doing it in God's house. This wasn't like out on the street or at the mall. This was in God's house. When Jesus does this in verse 46, he's quoting, he says, It is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he's, refer, he's quoting and referring to two places in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 56 is the first quote. And then in Jeremiah 7 is the, the, the note about the robber's den. And he says this, and they're, and they're basically the same words that he says the first time that he cleansed the temple, because it's the same reference, it's the same idea. He was angry that commerce had replaced conversation with God. Commerce had replaced conversation with God. And Jesus calls this criminal. He calls them robbers. Jesus talks about money a lot. I went back and, you know, we've been going through Luke this this school year. So I went back and looked and I found approximately 20 references to money in Luke's gospel. We'll run through these quickly. In chapter 6, Jesus says, if somebody takes your coat, give them your shirt as well. And he says to give to anyone who asks, and if something is taken from you, don't take it back. In chapter 7, he gives the parable of two debtors, where one is forgiven a small amount and one is forgiven a large amount. And he says, which one will love the master more, the one that was forgiven the small amount or the large amount? Which I think we all understand the one who was forgiven the large amount. In chapter 8, it talks about women who were financially supporting Jesus' ministry out of their own means, the money that they had. In chapter 9, he sends his 12 disciples out and he tells them to take no money with them. In chapter 10, he says that gospel workers are worthy of financial support and he honors the generosity of the good Samaritan. In chapter 11, he condemns the Pharisees for their precise legalistic tithing but evil hearts. They were doing the things they were supposed to do financially, but in their hearts they were evil. It was all for show. In chapter 12, he tells his followers to not covet other people's possessions and to not worry about food and clothing. He says, God will take care of you in that. It's not something that we should worry about. In chapter 14, he says, don't invite rich dinner guests who can pay you back. Invite the poor who can't pay you back anything. And he says that it's wise to count the cost before starting something. In chapter 15, he gives the parable of the woman's lost coin and how she sweeps up her whole house trying to find it and the rejoicing that's there when she does find it. Chapter 16, he talks about the unrighteous manager who went, when he found out that he was going to get fired, he reduced all of his master's the debts that all of uh, these people owed his master so that after he gets fired, they would be nice to him and maybe give him a place to stay and something to eat. He also in chapter 16 tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus who both died and how their fortunes had had really been reversed at that. (coughs) Chapter 18, he talks about the the rich young ruler, which we've talked about. And earlier in chapter 19, that we looked at last week, we saw the story of Zacchaeus, who said that he would give half of all he had to the poor, and he would repay anyone that he had defrauded. And we also see in in the parable of the nobleman, which I mentioned earlier, that he's going to judge his servants on how they invested his resources. Looking ahead to chapter 20, Jesus affirms paying taxes, which I think most of us would prefer that he had answered differently. Um, it's like, but this is what he said. In chapter 21, we'll see how he points out a widow's gift that she gives in the offering, saying that she gave more than all others because out of her poverty she gave all she had to live on. And in chapter 22, Judas... Judas gets paid to betray Jesus. And we see elsewhere in the Gospels that Judas stole money that was given to support Jesus' ministry. He was the one that carried the money and he would take out of there what he wanted. See, our attitude towards money and possessions reflects how or even if our lives are really being led by Jesus. But to the temple... You have to wonder, Jesus has come in He's cleansed the temple, even though just before He had said this temple was going to be torn down, that the city would be destroyed. So you have to wonder, why bother clean, cleansing the temple if it was to be destroyed, as He had just said it would be? In the other Gospels, His disciples remember what's in Psalm 69, where it says, The zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. See, that word zeal is not one that we particularly use a whole lot. But it talks about great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or objective or objective. So his zeal for God's house, for his house is what drove him. And it's what drove his anger at what was going on. Because at this point in history, the temple was the proper place of worship. Which I think sometimes on this side of the cross, Sometimes on this side of all the events of the book of Acts that we forget that. But at this point in time, the temple was the right place to worship. It was God's house on earth. Now this was going to change soon. As Jesus had already told the woman at the well, He said, who, who asked Him to, law, to to jump into the political or the religious debate at the time, you know, they said, the Samaritans, we worship at this mountain, but you Jews worship in Jerusalem. Which one is it? Trying to get Him on the record for what was the right place to worship. And Jesus told her, an hour is coming when you will not worship at this mountain and you won't worship at Jerusalem because the Father is looking for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And what He was referring to is after Jesus had been crucified, after He had raised from the dead, after He served on a minister on earth for another period of time and then He ascended into heaven... After that, the Holy Spirit came. We have what we call the Day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came down. And for all believers now, when a person accepts Jesus as their Savior, they receive the Holy Spirit then. But that hadn't happened yet. The temple was still central to worship, the proper worship of God. In verse 47, it says, "...and He was teaching daily in the temple." The king, Jesus, had temporarily reclaimed his home and he was using the cleansed temple as his classroom. So we have a bit of a standoff here in verse 48. Or starting in verse 47. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him and they could not find anything that they might do where all the people were hanging upon his words. So we have a bit of a standoff here. It's a tense situation. But everyone's a little bit afraid to make a move because of what may happen. Because you had Jesus and his followers and the people who were listening to him, this audience that was fascinated with every word that came out of his mouth on one side. But then you had the Pharisees and the other religious leaders on the other side who wanted to do something but they knew they couldn't make a move right now because they feared the people and they feared what might happen if they made a move. But they also feared Rome. Rome was occupying the the country at the time and they feared a few different things. One, they feared what the response would be if word got out that there's a man claiming to be the king of the Jews that was not part of the plan. But they also feared what might happen if they moved against Jesus, that then the people might rise up, that there would be some type of popular uprising or some type of revolution, all of which would be viewed as treason and would evoke a tremendous and violent response from Rome because they wouldn't put up with that. So we have this standoff here, and we'll see in the coming weeks how it's resolved. But what we have to draw from this today are a few things. Jesus was determined to cleanse the temple. But we have to ask ourselves why. And we talked about that, that His zeal for the house of God. He says, the zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So we understand that. If Jesus cared that much about the temple, about its holiness... How much more do you think He cares about our holiness? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That after the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside believers. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, that our, temples are, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That we've been bought at a price and that we're to glorify God with our bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, Now you, and he's referring to the church as a whole, he says, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So not only are we the temple of the Holy Spirit, we as a church are Christ's body and individually we're members of it. And then a few different places in Scripture, we see this concept that the church is the bride of Christ. We see in Ephesians 5, 2 Corinthians 11, and then again in Revelation 19, that the church is the bride of Christ. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 19 a couple of verses, starting at verse 6 of Revelation 19. He says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb Has come and his bride has made herself ready, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And your, your translation may have the righteous deeds of the holy ones or something along those lines. So we see here that as believers, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are the body of Christ and we are His bride. I don't have time to go into the whole idea of the bride of Christ. That would, might be another sermon in itself. But we see here, if we are His temple, if we are His body, if we are His bride, our holiness, our righteousness is obviously very important to Him. When Jesus first entered Jerusalem, He came on a donkey, He came in a way that was royal, but he was also humble in that. But when he returns, it will be on a white horse and in power. I'm going to continue reading from Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God and the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a powerful image of Jesus. And it's an image that we often don't think about. It's not the fair-skinned, blue-eyed Jesus that we might see in artwork or on TVs and movies. It's a Jesus that looks pretty dangerous and pretty intense. But that's Jesus. That will be who He is and how He is portrayed when He returns. This first time that He came, He came in humbleness. He was still a king. He was still the Messiah, but it was an It was in humbleness. He came to suffer for us. But when he returns, just as that nobleman in the parable we looked at last week, he's coming back to judge. The same Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves that when we look at Jesus, when we we try to figure out who he is, what he means to us, we have to ask, are we trying to make Jesus fit the image and the ideas that we have for him? what, What we want him to be. Or... Will we let him be who he really is and accept him for who he really is? As we read here, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that you are the King, that you are our Lord. You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are over all other kings. You are over anyone else who might have the title of Lord. You are above them all. Lord, as you came into the city, people recognized you. They praised you. And they may not have understood everything that was about to happen. But they knew they had to praise you. They knew that this was a tremendous occasion. Lord, as we see your zeal for your house, the place that people had, were supposed to come and pray to you to hear from you, to offer their sacrifices and their offerings, and the zeal and the anger when you saw that that place had been abused and misused, and your desire to set things right. Lord, may we recognize that same zeal, that same desire for each one of our lives the grief that it causes you when we don't follow you, when we don't accept who you are, when we reject the things that you have for us. Lord, I pray that each one of us here today would see you for who you really are as best as our human minds and hearts can understand it, that you are a holy God who one day will return to judge. But in your love, in your compassion for us, you came in the most humble way possible to teach us who you are. You are a God of love and compassion and to give us the opportunity to follow you, to pay the price that we couldn't pay on our own. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would work these things in the name